Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. Welcome to the show. Today we're talking about enterprise risk management. I moderated a recent panel at the Data-Driven Government event. My guests on the panel were Jenny Rohn, the Assistant Inspector General for Data Science at the Department of Agriculture, Larry Koskinen, the Chief Risk Officer for the Department of Housing and Urban Development, and Gary Cantrell, the Deputy Inspector General for Investigations in the Office of Investigations at the Department of Health and Human Services. First, we hear from Jenny Rohn of USDA and Larry Koskinen of HUD. I've almost been at USDA for about two years, and believe me, during that period of time, I've learned a lot. So, of course, today we have lots of ways to incorporate modern approaches and advanced analytics to address program risk and fraud, and it's an exciting and groundbreaking as we look to better target our limited resources to the highest risk areas. And for those of us, all of us probably in this room, that get jazzed about the possibilities and can visualize the end results, it's easy to jump in and say, okay, let's do this, and let's use that tool, and let's grab that data, and ta-da, this is what we found. But along with that very necessary creative thinking and experimental problem solving, it is, um, which is at the heart of analytics, there's practicality and realism that needs to come into play that has to be recognized and realized. So above all else, we need to give ourselves the permission, my favorite quote, to make haste slowly, or in Latin, festina lente. The foundation is change management, and to implement modern fraud and risk approaches through that lens. We, as the data analytics champions, have to facilitate the ability for our constituents to change the way they approach their jobs and decision making. It's critical that we sit down with the subject matter experts and elicit the right questions that can be answered to help them identify those risks and potential fraud and determine how to analyze and present data that allows them to target their resources effectively. In those conversations, we work to move them past starting with, and I swear every day that I walked in when I first met somebody, they would say, hey, tell us what data you have, and then we can tell you what maybe it would help with. But we need to move that conversation, and we need to be the ones that say, look, you have a goal to proactively identify contracts that are at risk of potential fraud. So what questions, what indicators will help you do that? And then together we map out what would be beneficial, what data can support answers to their questions, and how they want to interact with that data. For instance, is it a fraud model that takes known knowns and builds to incorporate machine learning and human interaction feedback loops, or is it a straight up risk scorecard of sorts? Thank you, Erica. At the same time, we have to be creative and experimental to inspire change. And so over the past year, my staff has worked on a number of projects that were sort of thrown against the wall and see what sticks, what inspires. So these have been done in some cases with subject matter experts and in some cases not. Uh, The majority have been done with open source data, which not only challenges the abilities of my staff's creative problem solving, 
but the way in which our constituents um, see the world and possibilities. So most of what we've done um, has focused on self-service business intelligence tools. For instance, when we received funds to oversee the 2017 disaster season, we built maps with GIS tools. With the, what we did was we took GIS coordinates from FEMA and we created the base based on those dec uh, disaster declarations. And then we took contract data from FPDS. We overlaid that based on the National Interest Action Code. And our auditors and investigators could then see the big picture. And they were able to drill down on specific areas and individual contracts, which aided in objectively scoping oversight activity. A lot of our investigations have to do with SNAP and fraudulent activity uh, in retailer fraud. Our investigators use two data sources consistently to assist with their investigations, um, but they have to access them six separately to obtain the information they need. So we built a proof of concept that took data from both to build a business intelligence tool to identify risk using 10 indicators. It's proven ben beneficial, but even an extract of some of that data is massive. So we still got to figure out how we can best implement this. We built proofs of concept focusing on disaster spending and financial assistance spending to provide insight uh, and assist in identifying indicators of risk. They were all built using USA spending data. Again, access to that data allows us to experiment and help everyone visualize the art of the possible. It's allowed us to gain insights, focus questions, and see where the gaps are in order to fill those data needs. So as we move on to next year, we're looking at uh, refining and finalizing some of those proofs of concept for full deployment, developing a proof of concept for contract risk and perhaps grant risk, always leveraging my friends in the oversight community, a practice I highly recommend, as well as developing tools for internal operational database decision making. So lessons learned. Always engage your subject matter experts early and often. Make them your champions. Be experimental and iterative. Be willing to make no-go decisions, but celebrate what you learned and leverage that elsewhere. Understand that data governance structures are key and that establishing data agreements take a very long time. So embrace the fact that data integrity can be a challenge, but the more you gain insight into the data, the more you find um, additional data to get that big picture and more accurate picture. Work as a patient change agent as we significantly change the way we do business. And we've been given two great tools um, recently. You've heard about them already, the Evidence Act and the Federal Data Strategy. Really, take advantage of the roadmaps those have to offer. Remember, Festina Lente. All right, very nice. Now let me ask one follow-up because there's a lot there. When you talk about some of those lessons learned, you talk about this idea of changing the culture, and we hear that all the time. Everybody needs to change the culture. It's one of those rote sayings I think we all get a little tired of. Did you have to find the champion? Or did you have to find somebody whose problem was so deep that they're like, please help us? Where did you find that first kind of like... Because I can imagine walking in there and being like, we're here to help, and, and they're like, oh, we've, we've done this before, we've suffered through this, or, or, or there's doubt, there's just, it's just too hard of a problem. How'd you get that first 
step. So, as I said, there's been a lot in the last year and a half of throw it against the wall. Jenny came up with some bright idea. Let's try to inspire people. Um, so, yes, you need those champions. I think the, the best thing we did going into um, launching ourselves into to 2020 was that we invited potential champions to come to our professional uh, development training for um, a week where I did exactly what I said. I leveraged um, our own community to inspire. So we've left there with this like roadmap for the future because those people are now going back into the audit side, the investigation side, and saying, oh my gosh, I had no idea that they could help us do this. So the contract um, fraud in particular is an area that our investigators want to really proactively focus on, and they were um, excited about the potential. But yeah, those champions, you got to have them side by side. And, and then the other question that usually comes up is the resource question. We don't have money. There's no money for this. You mentioned you use a lot of open source data, so you weren't necessarily going to a a third-party provider, a, pub, a private sector provider. Are there also some tools? Did you use any uh, either open source tools or any other uh, tools that you either had in-house? Or how, how'd you deal with that issue? Because again, well, we don't have the resources as a common refrain. Right. And so um, we have migrated to R in particular for our coding, and you know it, that. But that's a slow process too. So. I am a big proponent of open source. I think that the community out there is extremely supportive. You can grab algorithms. You can you, you can throw um, questions out. It's um, amazing. Usually, if you have a question about something, it's already been done out in the community. So that's where we've gone on the tools um, base. Uh, Larry? Some insights that I'd like to share with you this morning that, that are not technical insights, but have more to do with how you grow these programs and, and how you really make them stick and make them matter. Uh, I, I talk all the time in public about the difference between enterprise list management and enterprise risk management. These are different things and, and fundamentally different concepts. It's something you can put on your sticky and your, you know, above your desk. Um, but it's, it's an important insight, and I would submit to you that the way to get people to make decisions that matter in government uh, is not to appeal only to their, their head through their cognitive functions, but to their heart uh, through their affective functions. If you want to someone to agree with you, give them facts. If you want someone to do something for you, give them a good story. And I've learned that over and over. And even in an organization as institutionally um, hidebound as the Treasury Department uh, or with the urgent day-to-day bottom-line oriented mission as the post office, we found over and over that the power of a good story really was what we were all about. So that's insight number one. The human heart is complex, but if you are thinking you can do this from the sanitary 30,000-foot level, you're wrong. You, you've really got to get down there. Um, the, the measure of a good risk program is how many cups of coffee or glasses of beer you've, you've shared with your stakeholders. And that deep business knowledge and those trust relationships really are the, 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 the atomic level um, uh, elements of a, of a good program. Uh, you, can't, you can't short it. Um, I think that um, those of us who have been subject to the Inspector General, I spent most of my career being on the other side, realize that it's, it's a legitimate thing to fear that when the auditors come out there, they're primarily to shoot the wounded. That is um, an unhappy reality, not just in the character of auditors. I love auditors, just for the record. 
some of them are going to be auditing me shortly anyway, um, but uh, that in fact um, the, the uh, oversight community is stuck in paradigms of its own, some, some of them are its own making and some of them that are foisted on them by Congress and OMB. Um, but that, that in the IG world and at GAO, folks are trying to break out. And analytics, in fact, may be an opportunity for us on the program side to help them break out. Something called the, the tyranny of the funds bet, put to better use number, which I, I think is the equivalent of bureaucratic crack in the IG world. You know, who wants to be the one who, uh, you know, uh, reported a lower number than last year on foot, funds put to better use? And yet, what that does is reinforce bad behavior. And the folks in the IG world that I work with, especially in the audit side, ag agree. And they're looking for a way to move from episodic compliance auditing, which, you know, audits us firmly back into the 20th century, where, gosh, that's where we really want to be, right? Instead of thinking forward into the 21st century about what the new high-performing, citizen-oriented, results-oriented governing model is, as opposed to the 19th and 20th century government model, okay, is. Well, it's, again, it's the human beings that are at the, at the, at the core of that. Um, there's no such thing as IT magic. I, I used to love it at the post office when folks would come to us and they would say, have you heard about big data? And we were doing a billion transactions a day. Um, and uh, so, you know, we said, well, we just call it data here. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 you know, you, uh, that, that in fact, that's the ocean we swim in. And it is the structure of governing in, in the future. And I think that the sexiest new job in government is not the CRO, but it's the chief data officer. I mean, that, if I were 20 years younger, that's the job I would be, I would be fighting for. Um, so we're doing some, I think, innovative stuff at HUD based on that right now. Just a quick commercial message. Uh, we've recently been given a Treasury Department Innovation Grant to pursue our proof of concept work that we've been doing with Elder Research, who I think you've heard from. Um, A133 single audits are done. There are hundreds of thousands of them out there. We needed a way that we could look beyond the block grant in an objective and transparent way that would not uh, uh, subject us to criticisms of bias uh, and see if we could use words rather than numbers to analyze where we had potential problems uh, and opportunities for increased oversight on the, on the back end and on the front end of, of grant and contract instruments. So this is, this is proven uh, useful. We're using computational linguistics, machine learning, uh, and sentiment analysis, and asking the question, what do our auditors think? And sometimes, what do they feel about the programs that we're, we're looking at? This has been so successful. In fact, this is an, a data scientist's dream. We, we ground truthed our, our early conclusions with our program managers who work with these programs every day. And they said, you've got all the right risks, and you've got them in the right order. How did you do that? Okay, and uh, so you know we've 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 put on an enhanced proof of concept, and then we've recently gotten this grant from the Treasury Department, and also another three quarters of a million dollars to pursue it with uh, departmental funds at HUD. So suddenly, I went from zero money for analytics to over a million dollars this year, and we're going to be working on this nexus of heart and head uh, as we work both sentiment analysis and the, uh, the numeric analysis um, as we go forward. But the secret sauce is deep business knowledge. And um, if anyone comes to you and says, I've got this IT magic bullet for you, show them the door. There's no easy way forward. But what it takes is a deep, intimate trust relationship with your SMEs um, that you can exploit in some amazing ways if you think beyond the number. 
All right. Let, let me just back up because on the, the grant you received, can you walk me through that maybe a little bit more about what you're doing? You're looking for fraud not just on numbers, but through words. Walk me through a little bit more with that, so, how that pro- so pilot worked. First, we're not looking for fraud. We don't even, we call that the F word. We never, we never use it. You never use the F word in polite company. And, uh, and, and fraud is the ultimate F word if you're going to do this because it causes everybody to, go, to run screaming from the room, number one. So you, you want to ratchet up people's anxiety, just don't use that term. But you can say assurance or uh, internal controls. I mean, there are a lot of euphemisms for it. The other thing is fraud is, is a technical term. I'm a lawyer by training, although I'm in recovery. The fraud, when, the minute you put that nomenclature on it, it says it's been adjudicated in a court of law. Somebody has done the, you know, done the, uh, the convict walk, okay? So alleged fraud is not fraud. It's an internal control problem, right? So what we're looking for are, are, are programs in distress. And Actually, we're looking for more than that because our model not only uh, shows downside risk, it shows upside as well. So I can tell you um, what the profile of high-performing programs look with as much ease as I can tell you the, pro- the pro- profiles with, with uh, potential uh, uh, performance problems. You never hear from that in the oversight community. It's always, what are you doing wrong? We are having a very fulsome conversation now about what are we doing right who are our best practices? Uh, who are our benchmarkable assets within the organization? Um, it was a Tolstoy that said all happy families are happy in the same way and all unhappy families are unhappy according to their own problems. Well, all happy grants pretty much look alike, and all unhappy grants are different in, in different ways. So anomaly detection on the, on the unhappy side is fairly straightforward. On the happy side, it's a huge and very fertile opportunity for us to show our, our grantee constituents what good luck's like so they can model behavior. If you've ever raised children, and I'm not equating our grantees to children, but if you've ever raised kids, you know, catch them doing something right, and that's a very powerful model. It's, a, it's an opportunity for us to work with our colleagues at GAO, IG, and um, at uh, OMB to catch our constituents doing something right and really promote that kind of positive behavior as we go forward. Does that make any sense, or was that just a meander. Well, except for the whole part about uh, the semantics on fraud, but that's okay. okay. All I right. understand you're a lawyer. Yeah, yeah. Don't, As a journalist, just, words matter. I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So use them carefully. The word <laughs> fraud is like a loaded gun. It is, no. <laughs> but, but I did write a story that said fraud is no longer a four-letter word, so now I feel like maybe it is. <laughs> we have to take a break. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today, I'm playing excerpts of a panel I moderated on risk management and fraud at the recent Data-Driven Government Conference. Welcome back. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today, I'm playing excerpts of a recent panel I moderated at the Data-Driven Government event on enterprise risk management to combat fraud. My guests on the panel were Jenny Rohn, the Assistant IG for Data Science at the Department of Agriculture, Larry Koskinen, the Chief Risk Officer at the Department of Housing and Urban Development, and Gary Cantrell, the Deputy IG for Investigations in the Office of Investigations at the Department of Health and Human Services. In this segment of the show, we hear from Gary Cantrell from the Department of Health and Human Services. Being at HHS, you know, our primary focus is on Medicare and Medicaid spending. That's just you know, $1.2 trillion or so that's being spent in those programs federally, that's where we direct our attention. And over the years, I've been with HHS for uh, over 20 years, we've continued to evolve in how we target, identify, target, and, and enforce fraud in the Medicare and Medicaid programs, and there's uh, quite a bit of it. So I want to talk real quick, kind of a use case, which I think illustrates 
and, and I think in a positive way, some of the points and the concepts that have been uh, articulated by um, Larry and Jenny. Uh, first of all, we do what everyone does, and we use the data we have available, which is kind of vast and that we have access to all Medicare claims data. We have slightly less uh, ac great access to Medicaid data, and then we have a lot of other resources that we access to help us detect where we believe fraud exists, first geographically, and then second, who in, in, in our program, who is billing our program and is responsible for committing fraud. It's allegations of fraud at this point, as you all know, but it's a critical first step in ensuring that when you have $1.2 trillion in potential work in business, that you focus on the right things uh, at the right time, and with that data, you can move your work along much more efficiently and not harass, if you will, those that aren't committing fraud. And we have limited resources, so we really have to prioritize. So this has been the model behind all of our strike force operations. If you've had a chance, I won't have time to get into the full story here, but as was referenced earlier, we have takedowns, uh, healthcare fraud takedowns, national takedowns. But what we've done as we've matured, you know, we have typically measured our success in an investigation shop with convictions, how many, civil actions, how many, monetary recoveries, how much. And that is still a measure that we continue to track. It's important. That's one of the outputs of a work that we do in terms of criminal and civil law enforcement. However, as part of the strike force model, we want to see if, if we're changing behavior. Are we making a difference? Is the fraud continuing to increase in the face of our efforts, or is it going down? And it's a very difficult thing to measure, but we just started simply by seeing uh, if we're focused on durable medical equipment fraud in South Florida, and the claims for these, these types of uh, equipment are at a at billion dollars annually, do they go down after our enforcement efforts? And we began to track these sorts of uh, uh, behavioral changes, at least in terms of claim submission, and we saw real results in, in areas throughout the country and very specific, not overall Medicare spending, that doesn't tell us a lot, but specifically what are we targeting in our fraud enforcement efforts and in what locations, and let's measure those particular things so we can see a difference. But what we did, even then, we, uh, we reduced claims, uh, but are we ensuring that we're providing the right services Ultimately, is HHS providing the right services in the right places to its constituents, its Medicare beneficiaries, its Medicaid population? And that broader thinking uh, about really how does our enforcement effort connect to the person intended to receive the benefits of this program? And that's a stretch for a law enforcement type uh, like myself and all my peers within my organization. But I think just as we've evolved and our, the data has become much more uh, readily available and we can utilize it much more effectively, this is the logical next question. And I want to give you kind of just a, um, a use case of how we've done this in the opioid space, uh, because this is really where we've turned this uh, model of looking at impact to beneficiaries and driving our efforts as a result of that. First of all, if you don't know, Medicare does pay for a lot of the prescription opioids. $4.2 billion was spent in 2016 on prescription opioids paid for by Medicare alone. So that's a lot of, again, potential business for us, knowing all of us, to talking about reaching, you know, trying to grab somebody by the heart, that there's an opioid crisis in this country and everyone knows someone who's been directly impacted by this crisis. $4.2 billion gives us a lot of opportunity to at least make a change and hopefully drive some change uh, in improving beneficiaries' lives in the Medicare program. So. We wanted to go beyond that. So typically we would just say, okay, who are the bad doctors? Who are the bad prescribers? Let's identify all those outliers. 
and let's just target our efforts right there. But in this case, we decided to turn that equation around a little bit and look at it from another angle and said, who are the Medicare beneficiaries who are at greatest risk of overdose and death or abuse of opioids based on the volume and the duration of their opioid prescriptions and their consumption? Uh, so we looked at CDC guidelines for what, what they consider at least normal prescribing of opioids for an individual who doesn't have cancer and who isn't in hospice um, about to die. And they had a number, 90, 90 milligram, milligram morphine equivalent dosage. So we said, well, that's a good number over a course of 90-day period. If it's more than that, it's probably outside what is commonly uh, acceptable uh, medical practice. Um, so we used that number. We said, well, let's just up it a little bit. Let's go to 120. And then we said, well, let's go, uh, those are going to be, they're at high risk of, of abuse or op overdose. And then we decided, well, let's look again at uh, extreme risk. And we went all the way to 240 milligram mor morphine equivalent dosage over a 12-month period. So these are individuals who were consuming a, a lot uh, of high-quantity opioids. And we wanted to see if our efforts, through our efforts, we could change and lower that number of Medicare beneficiaries who are being exposed to this risk because of overprescribing. Uh, you know, not every one of those individuals, of course, is being overprescribed, again, but we can use that CDC guideline as a measure against the, the population, and at least collectively, we can begin to work towards trying to reduce that, knowing what this crisis has done to us. So. Beginning in 2017, we issued our first data brief, um, this particular measure. And this was something as, you know, being in our, in our office, we were very focused on opioid enforcement already and trying to be that champion across all OIG, as we discussed earlier, and getting all the other components engaged. Um, we started developing these, these numbers. And to my surprise, there were 500,000 Medicare beneficiaries that were over this threshold of 120, which is already in excess of uh, CDC's guidance. So that's a, lot of, that's a lot of individuals whose lives we can potentially impact if we can bring these doctors uh, who are prescribing and other uh, health professionals into, into line, if you will. Just pull the bad docs out and allow the good docs to do that pain management or other thing uh, as, they're, as they're trained to do. And there were, as I said before, there was $4.2 billion uh, in spending. And we wanted to, it began, first of all, I'm, I'm an investigator, but it caused us to think about this problem in new ways. I can't investigate my way out of this. I'm not going to have a direct one-to-one -one relationship in my effort to this population of 500,000. I will have an impact on, an, on a number of them through enforcement actions. But, you know, that indirect relationship and what our actions are and how it can impact this population that we're trying to impact and improve their lives requires us to think about, well, do we write letters, outlier prescribers? Do we let them know how bad they look in, term, in the context of their data compared to other data? How do we work with the department more effectively to, to um, ensure that they're doing everything that they can do to um, help lower this number of, of at-risk beneficiaries? And then finally, how do we share this information and this data both internally, externally, with the public at large, to help drive this conversation and help, you know, as, as we continue to, to lower prescribing in, in the U.S., help move the needle from our, our, our vantage point at the OIG. So I'm happy to say we, we've collectively across OIG, with our audit staff, our evaluation staff, our investigators, we have all in our, our data analytics shop, we've all focused on this problem and not 100% attributable to our work, 
granted, but uh, in 2018, that number 500,000 is now down to 350,000. And that's a significant number of individuals who are at least, at this point, it's like um, if, you've, if you've, your identity has been stolen because you worked for the government and OPM breached. You know, we're, not, we're doing everything we can still to double down on information security. It's not to protect the, necessarily the ones that have already lost their identity, but to pre prevent new individuals from losing their identity through bad information security. This is to prevent, as best we can, new uh, individuals from becoming addicted to opioids who are in the Medicare program. And to try, on the other side, to ensure appropriate prescribing and treatment is available. So we are very excited about that. Um, we also, and I know it's, I'm probably over my five minutes, I'm going to go real quick here. We just recently, this year, we announced in December the Appalachian Regional Opioid Strike Force. And this was focused on those states where it all started. In December, we announced this. In April, we had our first takedown with 60 individuals charged, 53 healthcare professionals, most of the doctors. Uh, in West Virginia, we announced the second phase of that. Another 13 individuals have been charged. And that has already had, we measured the impact of prescribing uh, four months in advance of the takedown and four months after, and we've already seen a 21% reduction in the number of pills dispensed in the Appalachian region after April. And we've already seen a 36% reduction in those states of indiv the individual uh, morphine equivalent dosage that I was referring to earlier. So we know this has an impact, and we know we have this data, and our new use and our new thinking about how we can use this data is really contributing to our greater impact. The use case is, is, is a great example of, of taking the data you have available and applying it to make a difference. Where did you start? How did you decide? that that was the, the use case or that was the question you were trying to answer. Because I, I think one thing that, that I think, again, goes back to the same kind of conversation I asked Jenny and Larry was there's so much data, there's so many places to start, there's so many challenges, and, and you also have the naysayers of we've done that before, that won't work. Walk me through just shortly so we can get to their questions. Yeah. The process by which you guys made that decision to start with this data, and, and then did you find the data? Yeah, a couple things. One, we committed as an organization to creating uh, key performance indicators and to thinking about impact beyond what we typically measure. And so I got behind this topic as one that we would, we would put forward as an OIG-wide uh, KPI. That helped direct a lot of attention. But I had to, um, our thinking, we understand, it's just our understanding of the problem a greater understanding of the problem, that arrests of a doctor over prescribing opioids does not result in the 200 patients that they're prescribing to getting clean and getting treatment. It actually disrupts their care. Maybe they go to the street and go to heroin or fentanyl and are at greater risk of overdose. So this understanding, I think, required me to think beyond that conviction and everyone else in our organization, everyone at DOJ, and that we're working with at DEA. And that's, I really think, that recognition of the problem. We have to take a break. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today, I'm playing excerpts of a panel I moderated on risk management and fraud at the recent Data-Driven Government Conference. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today, I'm playing excerpts of a recent panel I moderated at the Data-Driven Government event on enterprise risk management to combat fraud. My guests on the panel were Jenny Rohn, the Assistant Inspector General for Data Science at the Department of Agriculture, Larry Koskinen, the Chief Risk Officer for the Department of Housing and Urban Development, and Gary Cantrell, the Deputy IG for Investigations in the Office of Investigations at the Department of Health and Human Services. In this part of the show, the panelists take questions from the audience. Thanks, uh, Brian Jones. 
Uh, I wanted to ask e any of you, uh, back to data-driven government, data-driven decisions, your colleagues in the executive boardroom, how are you helping them to move forward and better understand what it means to make data-driven decisions at that level of the organization? I'll give my perspective. It truly is a culture change. It truly is a different way of thinking. Exactly what Gary was just saying, you know, we think, especially in the IG community, we think in indictments and convictions and arrests and, 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 and that's easy data, you know? I mean, we live and breathe that every day. The funds put to better use. And we come to the table with these like gut knowledges of, I know where the potential fraud is. I've been doing this for 25 years, or I'm doing a compliance audit because we haven't seen it in five years. So I keep trying to bring to the table, and, and really, truly, we've had long conversations about this, in terms of, gee, wouldn't it be nice if we could make just even an operational decision based on the data? based on knowing exactly what our regional spread of activity is. And wow, if there's more SNAP retailer fraud over here, might we want to staff up that office rather than that office? Um, it is a constant conversation. Um, and the more we get to be able to do things like executive dashboards, especially at that level, um, I think we can help move that need. We approach it that way, um, but also with a focus on the mechanics of governing. Um, so it's, it's one thing to get folks to agree with you, but um, when you tie their strategic plan, their performance measures, their budget, and their capital investment planning, their hearts and minds will surely follow. And, uh, and, and you have to be smart and do that. So I've actually got two uh, budget analysts working with my team and their role, it's a hybrid job that we've rewritten the job description called risk budget analyst. And their job is to uh, calculate the financial uh, impact of a risk and a risk mitigation effort understand whether the subject office has the wherewithal to fund that mitigation themselves. Uh, if they don't, what is the delta? Uh, and then to follow up as the mitigation is put in place. So you're changing the mechanics in a way that then people kind of get swept along. It's, it is important to, to capture the hearts and minds. But again, when you've got them by the budget, then it creates a, a dynamic, especially in government, that is, that is really um, unstoppable. The other, the other quick point I'd like to make, and that is the, the risk management process, the risk profile applies some continuity to programs, well-intended uh, insights and so forth that make their way up into leadership conversations. And over 40 years in and around government, I was on the Grace Commission and the reinventing government thing, and I've seen a lot of these different you know, good government initiatives, but they tend to peter out when the key stakeholders leave. The thing about getting this stuff into the risk framework is that it has a life of its own. And you know, GAO is looking at it, the IG is looking at it, the OMB people are looking at it. And it's very, very hard to just drop a good initiative uh, because a new administration comes in and says that was then, this is now, and we're going to have to rediscover reality over the next two years and so forth. But you can keep momentum on good governing issues that way. Carrie, before you go, just let me ask Larry a quick follow-up. Larry, on the budget, it's almost like the opposite of ROI. 
you're, you ask those budget officers. Instead of saying, well, what's our return on investment? Right. You're, you're almost asking them, what, what's the investment itself? Right. And, then, and then you can get to the ROI, or that's not even in the discussion? So you've got to be mindful about ROI all the time. But ROI is not just a number. There are some things that are really important that can only be described, not counted. And you can't run away from that. There are investments that we make in government that, that are simply not amenable to a private sector-style ROI conversation. And you've got to be confident about that and, and stand up uh, you know, around that. And it's hard. That's probably the hardest thing about being in government, is that some of the things that we do simply are not commonsensical uh, to someone whose orientation is more of a, of a you know, how does it affect the P&L? Did you want to go or another question? I'll just go. add quickly. You know, you have to have a leadership team that is both open-minded and collaborative, and you have to have a, a chief data officer like Carol Brzmakowicz, who is, you'll hear from later today, who is uh, yeah. helping us to all realize this kind of approach. She's a superhero. We have to take a break. You're listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today, I'm playing excerpts of a panel I moderated on risk management and fraud at the recent Data-Driven Government Conference. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. Today, I'm playing excerpts of a recent panel I moderated at the Data-Driven Government event on enterprise risk management to combat fraud. My guests on the panel were Jenny Rohn, the Assistant Inspector General for Data Science at the Department of Agriculture, Larry Koskinen, the Chief Risk Officer for the Department of Housing and Urban Development, and Gary Cantrell, the Deputy IG for Investigations in the Office of Investigations at the Department of Health and Human Services. In this part of the show, the panelists continue to take questions from the audience. Mariana Lopez from Analytica. Um, as a contractor that helps support IRS, CMS, and USDA combat FWA, one of the things that we've been really surprised about is the level of innovations at certain agencies and how those aren't transferring across to others, such as like graph theory for network analysis. Can you talk a little bit about some of the initiatives you guys have to share information across the agencies on best practices or application of new approaches, as well as what you'd like to see maybe in the future? I can speak, you know, from the investigator's perspective. We do a lot of sharing across both public and private partnerships. We're part of a healthcare fraud prevention partnership with a, a trusted third party and actual data outputs from analysis, both within government and in the private sector, private healthcare payers, is shared, combined, and analytics is applied to that combined public-private data. I think that's important. We share the, the, our approaches to an analytics. The, the measure that I was talking about before with opioids, we put out a toolkit, which in essence, we just published the code and published how we utilize the code for anyone and everyone else to, 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 to use in private or public space. So I think we're all about sharing. I can't um, get into any of the technical details about our, our, our operations. Carol can talk about that later, but we, we share our information as broadly as we are legally allowed to do. We think that's the best approach. And we, we've made the decision that if you, it's devilishly difficult to share data. I think we can stipulate that. Um, and we made the decision that if you can't share the data, you can share your infrastructure and your, uh, your algorithms. So everything we're doing at HUD now is open source platform to reduce the barrier to sharing um, and uh, data that is publicly available. And so um, we're we have developed a weighted taxonomy uh, for general grant health and contract health is what we're working on right now. And we're also being, uh, going to be doing the same work on IPIRA. So if you're you know, looking for a broad way to analyze uh, your contract and, and uh, grant environment for IPIRA problems, uh, we're working on that. But the whole idea is, you know, if you can't move the mountain, right, 
move Muhammad or however, however the aphorism goes. Uh, and, that's, and that's the approach we're taking. I'm a big proponent, as I said, of um, not reinventing the wheel. Um, so I work very hard to find my colleagues and friends and chat with them and share best practices and inspire each other. And um, I will say A133, I worked on um, A133 activities at um, the Recovery Accountability and Transparency Board. Um, then um, I know HHS is, um, OIG is doing some A133 work. I was at the inner governmental audit forum the other day and there were actually questions about whether or not um, anyone cares about the A133 and does it really do any good um, so and I was like oh my gosh there's so much going on I, I mean that is a prime example of one that being able to share across not only the program side but the oversight side when um, when when there's all of this good energy going into especially publicly available data, that none of us need to go out and reinvent the wheel. We all need to partner together and um, be enhanced by each other's um, contributions. All right, I have another question here, but before, two of you are on in, in the IG space. I know the SIGI, the IG Council, does a really good job of having committees and really communicating. Is there anything within the SIGI community that is being that, that promotes this idea of sharing? Just briefly, maybe a little bit of a curveball. So the data you're, analytics. You're laughing because. <laughs> well, because because the co-chair is sitting in the audience. So. <laughs> I didn't so. know that. So. <laughs> so Erica is the co-chair of the, and she's um, from the TIGTA Inspector General's office, um, and doing some great work um, over there. Um, and we do have a data analytics working group um, that is under the. It used to be the IT committee, and now it's the technology committee, right? Um, so, so we do, and and then there we have a grant fraud working group that kind of covers um, sort of the law enforcement. So not only just IG areas, and we talk a lot about um, analytics in there too. So, yep, there are ways. And, and not to leave you out, Larry, is there any, the chief risk world is, is? I know more and more agencies are getting chief risk officers. There's a big push for enterprise risk management. Any sort of interagency council or group that you can talk to or? So we have an informal working group of the CFO Act agencies that's been opened up a little bit. We meet at the Treasury Department every couple of uh, months. A lot of informal conversations and actually OMB and GAO have been remarkably forward-leaning on this stuff. I'm on a, a task force that's evaluating now the SIGI guidelines on audit standards and the uh, uh, implementation playbook for risk management in the IG world as well. There's a lot of very interesting uh, Cross-boundary, we don't collaborate, we don't even cooperate with the IG, that's inappropriate. What we do is we coordinate and align, and that's useful, good, appropriate work. Um, and uh, it is a remarkable period right now where there's a lot of that generative stuff going on. That's all the time we have for today. For this show, I played excerpts of a recent panel I moderated at the Data-Driven Government event on enterprise risk management to combat fraud. My guests on the panel were Jenny Rohn, the Assistant Inspector General for Data Science at the Department of Agriculture, Larry Koskinen, the Chief Risk Officer for the Department of Housing and Urban Development, and Gary Cantrell, the Deputy Inspector General for Investigations in the Office of Investigations at the Department of Health and Human Services. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to a special edition of Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. 